Hi, I'm Leah Wheatholter, owner of Workman Forensics, and this is the Investigation Game Podcast. Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast. Today I'm joined by David Jansen. Dave is a certified fraud examiner and a certified anti-money laundering specialist. After 25 years of service, Dave retired from the IRS Criminal Investigative Division as a special agent. He then worked as a contract financial investigator for the Federal Bureau of Investigation for almost 20 years. It's actually at the FBI that I met Dave while he was also there and we assisted on various cases. He has instructed several courses on financial investigations, including those at Northeastern State University in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, and at the Federal Law Enforcement Center in Glencoe, Georgia. He also instructs a two-hour segment as part of our Be a Data Sleuth seminars called Intro to Money Laundering and Tracing Illicit Funds. He's a fan of our podcast and stumbled upon an interesting case study as reported in the Wall Street Journal. He's joining me today to tell us about this case and to comment on it from his extensive experience in financial investigations. Thanks for joining me today, Dave. Well, thanks for having me, Leah. We had the opportunity to work together at the FBI, and uh, I also have uh, reviewed some of your podcasts and have enjoyed them, and you're doing a great job with that, and I thought... This particular Wall Street Journal article that I read might have uh, some importance with one of your podcasts. So here we are today. Yeah, well, thanks so much. Thanks for sharing the article with me and your summary about it. And I'm looking forward to talking about it. And I think that this topic of robocall scams is timely right now because of all types of scams that have popped up with the COVID crisis. This one's just very in-depth. And so I'm excited to talk about it. So first, can you kind of just talk about where did you start whenever you saw this article and what kind of caught your eye? And Well, uh, I typically read the Wall Street Journal in the morning. This was a better than a full page article about robocall scams escalate because they work. And I thought, wow, this is a full page article. I've, I've got to read this. And matter of fact, when I read it, it was so detailed and so involved because the victim in this robocall scam came forth to be interviewed by a Wall Street Journal editor or a journalist and uh, told her her complete story. And it was very detailed. And I got to tell you, you know me well enough to know that I like flowcharts and it had a flowchart in it. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, that would definitely catch your eye. You'd, you do like flowcharts. So... Kind of give us the background of this scam. Who was affected and what started the scam? Well, the, what started the scam was a law enforcement impersonation by an individual who claimed to be an FBI agent. He started the scam with a robocall and left a voicemail for the victim. And the victim was at work and received the voicemail, played it back, and then returned the call to the scammer who uh, turned out to be an FBI impersonator. And the FBI impersonator told the victim that her social security was stolen and crimes had been committed under her name and persuaded her to transfer assets to accounts that he controlled on the pretext of protecting the funds. Now, if you can imagine that on responding to that voicemail, that that's a huge red flag to me and probably should have been to that lady. But the scammer then coached the victim on how to satisfy 
compliance questions at financial institutions where she would be moving some of the funds. And ironically, he kept her on the phone for hours at a time. And this scam lasted for two weeks and involved hours of being on the phone with the scammer in the first three days. And the long and short of the this scam is the scammer was impersonating an FBI agent. He sounded official on the phone. He gave the victim a badge number and a story of about how her identity had been compromised. And the bad side of this uh, story is she gave her life savings to him as a result of this scam. And I feel like it, when I read it the first time, I thought, my gosh, this is a great example of fraud is not theft by force, but by deception, because he deceived this victim throughout this process, this two-week process. Yeah, and I find it interesting. You said that he coached her on how to satisfy the compliance questions. That's really interesting too. But I guess if, if the victim's already decided to trust this person as an FBI agent, it would make sense that maybe to, to give these instructions of how to satisfy all these compliance things, that's just a red flag to me. But if you're trusting the person, maybe not. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, Leah, because I think the scammer had done some homework about this particular victim. And part of his scam is, you know, getting that person to go to their bank and withdraw funds. He was sort of training her as to what type of questions would be asked of her because banks are required to have procedures in place to flag suspect transactions. They do have some flexibility to set those parameters. I know that in my agent career, I've made presentations to banks as it relates to Bank Secrecy Act and money laundering. And one of the things that we tried to educate the first line or front line bank employees on was when they're dealing with a customer and they, think the transaction might be suspect. And in other words, something like this, where they're taking money out of their account in the form of cash, maybe something like that, that they should ask some follow-up questions and try to get the customer to uh, think that maybe maybe I'm doing something that is, I'm being influenced by someone else. In, in this case, the victim thought the scam had to do with insurance companies are callers who claimed a relative was in the hospital, for example, because this victim was an oncologist nurse. So she was an educated person. She was in her early 60s. She was scammed by this, this individual, starting with a robocall by him leaving a voicemail and then her calling back and uh, him saying that he was an FBI agent working for a social security attorney general's office on social security crimes and that her, uh, her identity had been stolen and had been used to commit money laundering and drug crimes. And so that persuaded her to cooperate with him. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, who wants to mess with that, especially if he's offering to provide some sort of relief or help I mean, she probably just thought she was avoiding some big mess, you know? Are there any reported statistics that you found reported for this kind of crime? Well, I did a little bit of research on the internet, but the article itself in the Wall Street Journal article 
spoke to the Federal Trade Commission has reported some statistics on this crime. And they said that the Federal Trade Commission just recently had studied some statistics on this crime and came up with last year, 2019, there were 139,000 reports of fraud involving people claiming to be from the Social Security Administration. And those reports totaled losses of over $30 million. Now, my point would be, keep in mind, this is reported Social Security losses only. You and I know from working in the fraud arena, there's a lot of fraud that goes unreported or undetected. So that would be one variable that we probably have to take into consideration as it relates to uh, statistics. But another variable would be other agencies like the IRS. For example, when I was an agent working for the Criminal Investigation Division, from time to time, we would have information come in from the form of a telephone call or a witness come in and say that they were a victim of a fraud similar to this. So this type of activity occurs not only in Social Security Administration, but the IRS and, and other, uh, other uh, agencies. And sure. this Wall State, Wall Street Journal case had all the hallmarks of a government impersonation scam that had snared thousands of other victims, according to the article. And, and one of the questions I asked myself when I was reading it was, why is this becoming so prevalent? And the article pointed out that it was, it was not expensive and it was easy for fraudsters to blast out thousands of phone calls and hard for law enforcement to trace those calls. Phone calls and hard for law enforcement to trace those calls. And they can even make a call from an overseas phone, but make it appear on your, your cell phone that it was from a local area code. Right. So scammers benefit from the sheer volume of low-cost calls made with web technology and a trove of information they gather on the, the, the customer or victim that they're going to target. You know, because they probably know a lot of information about them based on online searches and dark web information from data breaches and what have you. My sense in this Wall Street Journal article is that the scammer knew a lot about the victim. Yeah. So what about financial institutions? How is the compliance of banks part of this scam or do they have any responsibilities? Well, that's a good question because all these financial type frauds involve obviously financial institutions and and uh, banks are have a compliance department and uh, I would suggest to you that as we go through some of the details of this fraud just think about if you could have been a party to help this victim going to these banks and been a, been actually aware of what was going on how you maybe could have stopped it as a, a private investigator you know, someone who was a friend who was just trying to help out, that kind of thing. But the banks do have a a responsibility and they're supposed to report suspicious transactions. The problem though with it is typically those reporting requirements are after the transaction has taken place. And in many cases, the money is already gone. So it's usually goes overseas on something like that. Yeah. And it seems like from just some experiences that we've had, like we've actually 
had cases where an employee was being scammed personally and stole money from the employer to fulfill the scam, like lottery scam type things. Or on our podcast episode about the embezzlement, the fraud, and the murder, the bank had actually started suspicious activity reports. But like you said, it was after those transactions had taken place. The money is gone, especially in some of these lottery scams. And something that struck me out of that interview with uh, Jason Zirkle was that they went to the bank to check into some of these transactions. And they said, well, we actually do, you know, we've been working on our suspicious activity reports, but we're not finished yet. So just like the timeliness of that even getting completed, I mean, it's just that money was long, you know, just long gone by the time uh, some of these reports are filed. So yeah, particularly on these robocalls, because you don't really know who you're dealing with. And my experience with most of these scenarios has always been that it was a one-time deal and it was for a smaller amount of money and and it happened fast. For example, like uh, I, I know myself personally, I've received robocalls saying that my grandson was overseas and he was in trouble and he needed money and to advance the money through Western Union. And obviously my experience took me away from doing something like that, but there's a lot of victims who fault for that and so the money's gone and it's gone quick and there's very little investigation that you can do. Whereas this Wall Street Journal scenario, that's one of the other things that caught my attention when I read it was it, it covered a two week period and we're going to go into some of the transactions. It covered multiple transactions. It also covered how this scammer controlled this victim through telephone calls and text messages, that kind of thing and what he said to her. Yeah, did the victim know about these kinds of scams? Did it talk about that? Actually, that's a good question. They did talk about that after the fact, after she went to the police department later and to the bank to try to stop the money going overseas. She, she said that she knew that these types of scams happened with insurance companies, but she didn't know of anything like what happened to her personally. She said she never heard about things like what happened with me in quotes in the article. Yeah, that is always surprising. And we talked before we started recording about how we're not being critical of this victim. But it is so. it always is so surprising that there are people in this world who haven't heard about scams like this because I'm surrounded by information like this all the time. I know, I'm, I'm the same way, Leah. I read that article, this article, and it, when I read it, I, I felt really bad for this person, but I was glad she was willing to come forward and tell her story to help other people, and hopefully this podcast will do the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's get into the details of the case. How did the scheme work? And how did it start? What are, what are those details? Well, it started, like I said, with a voicemail to the victim claiming to be a part of an attorney general's office social security investigation. And the voicemail occurred at her, while she was at work. She was terrified when she got the voicemail. So she took it upon herself to call back and an operator connected her with a man impersonating an FBI agent. Now that's intriguing to me because that means there's possibly a co-conspirator involved in this crime because an operator 
answered the phone and connected her, the victim, with a impersonating FBI agent. Right. And he, he commenced to tell her that her information and had been stolen, and uh, he confirmed her identity had been stolen. He told her drug deals and money laundering were committed under her name while telling her she knew she was not responsible, yet he wanted to help her. But she had to cooperate with her with him or be arrested. Now that's another red flag because if you didn't do anything wrong, you shouldn't necessarily be arrested. So that should have been a red flag to her. And in your experience, I mean, I know in my experience, I haven't seen this, but in your experience, does the FBI like call and make threats like that? No, yeah, no, it yeah. would. It, right. That, that, that's the unusual thing. And but you know, you got to remember in these these crimes. That's how they develop a certain amount of trust because of a, a, a uniformed police officer. You know, if they're saying they're a uniformed police officer or an FBI agent, somebody in a law enforcement capacity, people tend to have built in trust factor. And I think that that was the case with this lady and the scammer took advantage of that. He elicited her trust with being uh, telling her that he was an FBI agent. And yeah. to continue this, he, he told her she would have to move her money out of existing accounts to ones he said would uh, be protected by the government or accounts would be fro or her accounts would be frozen. He he asked her about her assets and she told him where her accounts were. So now he's got the real information that he's anxious to probably put in play. He's gained her confidence. He's laying out what she needs to do. And it just so happened to be that when that voicemail came in, it was not a very good time in her life as her husband was recovering from uh, cancer treatments. And one of her daughters had uh, recently suffered a stillbirth. So that played into her going along with what he was asking of her. So he clouded her judgment. There's no question about that. He continued to talk to her on the phone to keep her away from her family and others. So the scammer, in my opinion, built trust through the robo phone calls. Yeah, and definitely caught her at like a very vulnerable time. Right. So as part of this article, you had mentioned that there's something called the ether factor. What is this? Yeah, I uh, I never heard of it before. It was a term that was used in the article. It was quoted by a, a state director in Washington for AARP who works with retired people. He said the ether factor is a mental state of heightened emotion that clouds rational judgment. And I thought to myself, you and I work embezzlement cases and uh, to some extent some money laundering together. I was trying to figure out how that ether factor fitted into embezzlement cases versus like this being a theft case. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I ever came up with an answer, but again, he defined this individual and defined the ether factor as a mental state of heightened emotion that clouds rational judgment. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. And maybe just part of those long phone calls and conversations that they were having, you know? Um, yeah, I, I'm sure that clouded her, her judgment. Yeah. How did the scammer get the victim's confidence? That was the last part of the scheme before the money started to transfer. He told her to make sure that she had her driver's license, pen and paper, and a phone charger. 
and told her to get a cab and that she should keep receipts for her taxi rides and for a two-night hotel stay, which she, she did. She kept that. He said that he would submit those to a courthouse for reimbursement. Well, that turned out to be a lie, but she said that lie gave her comfort that he was who he claimed to be. So uh, after this, he started describing where she had to go, which credit union or which bank where they had money to go to to uh, start making the withdrawals. And he convinced her to not talk on the phone in the, in the financial institutions and that as soon as the transfer took place that she was supposed to make a copy of the transfer on her phone and send it to him. Now, you know, I thought about that too, Leah. You're, you and I are used to dealing with books and records, but now that phone becomes the books and records yeah. in part because the, uh, taking a picture of uh, the transfer would be a, a documentary evidence that any investigator or private investigator would want to see. Yeah. So what did she tell the bank that the money was for? Well, good point. He, he instructed her on the first transactions to say, it was for apartment renovations. And that was probably driven by the fact of the dollar amount that was being taken and that kind of thing. He instructed her what to say. And in the first transaction, it was for apartment renovations. Hmm. So do you want to kind of talk about the specific financial transactions or, you know, the things that we would be interested in if we were following the money? Yes. And you're welcome to kind of think about what you would do at certain points. It's going to take a little bit of time because in summary, let me say that there were four victim accounts were involved. Five scammer accounts were involved, which I think is very unusual. And the total number of transactions involved was seven. And that, that's even more unusual to me in a case like this. Because you would think that over a two-week period of time and that many transactions that the victim would become very concerned about what's happening. So on the first day, the victim caused two transfers, one for $9,950 and another for $30,500 from the same credit union account at an account in New York, and the transfer deposits were to two different Bank of America accounts. So we'll just call them Bank of America account one and two. And I thought that was interesting because I thought that was unusual. I would have thought the transfers would have gone to just one account. But I got to thinking back over what we talked about earlier that the robocall, when she called back, she talked to an operator who in turn passed her on to the alleged impersonating FBI agent. This could have been where the money was being split between another co-conspirator. The article didn't go into that, but that's what my sense is telling me that one of these transactions may have benefited a co-conspirator. We'll be right back to this interview. If you're a professional with continuing education requirements, then you've sat through your fair share of required training hours. Let's just say you probably didn't love it. And every year, the requirement hours sneak up on you at the worst time. That's why we've created the Investigation Game, an interactive CPE training experience that qualifies for two hours of ethics continuing education. The Investigation Game, the case of the Man Cave, 
gives players the opportunity to walk through an investigation and solve a case based on actual events. Think of it as your favorite detective game, but with an opportunity to learn while you play. Players are given case details, decision-making steps, and additional case information to then quantify the embezzlement loss, identify schemes used, and uncover assets purchased with stolen funds. Gameplay wraps up with a presentation providing the case solution and awards the winning teams. This valuable event makes earning continuing education hours fun by combining a real-life case study with an interactive team-building game that we think you're going to love. To learn more or to register, visit investigationgame.com. Welcome back to the podcast. The scammer had her spend a night in a hotel, if you can imagine. And yeah, she, so, uh, strange. she she called her husband and told him that she had to stay the night at work, which wasn't the truth, but he didn't question it at all. So that early the next morning, the scammer told her to take a taxi to another credit union that they had accounts with in New Jersey. And there she waited for an hour for instructions from the scammer. In the meantime, she bought the taxi driver a cup of coffee and a donut, if you can imagine that, while they're waiting to hear from the scammer. And then the scammer provided the victim a Panama bank account number for a bank in, called Benismo, which should have been a huge red flag to her, and asked her to transfer the money from the New Jersey credit union account to that Panama bank. Now, typically, as it relates to international transfers of money, they are blocked if the recipient of the money it is on a sanction list. But in this case, the scammer was not, the name, whatever name he was using, was not on the, on the sanctions list, so that transaction went through. So that same day, he instructed her to go to the Citibank account that they had and withdraw $30,500 from it to a third Bank of America account, which was very unusual to me. And unless they closed out the first two Bank of America accounts is the only thing I can think of because time had passed and they might have been, the scammer might have thought he was maybe hot going back to the Bank of America for account number one and two. So that's the only thing I could come up with. Anyway, so over the weekend, the scammer continued to call and inquired about her retirement account. So now, now we're going to drain the retirement accounts, if you can imagine that. Goodness. But to do that, she had to get her husband's approval. And she did get her husband's approval, but she never discussed any previous transactions with him or showed him any documents. So the victim uh, initiated a transfer of $273,000 less, if you can imagine this, $54,600 in taxes for early withdrawal of funds from her retirement account. Oh, man. So she transferred that money to the Citibank account. And I asked myself, I wonder why he instructed her to do that. Because he, he would have known that the retirement account bank, TIAA, probably would have asked some pretty detailed questions of her if the money would have went from TIAA's retirement account directly to Panama. Right. So it went through Citibank. He knew that he had accomplished one transaction already through Citibank. So he asked her to send it to a Citibank account. From there, she transferred it the next day at his request to 
a second Panama Bank account at Benismo. Now we've got a total loss of including or keeping track of her her taxi cab fares and and what have you, hotel rooms. She had a loss of $337,105. I would say that the ether factor must have got the best of her. Yeah, wow. I mean, just so involved to isolate someone from their family and have kind of gotten hold of her with so much fear that she's going to be in all this trouble, but he can make it go away. And then this is how we're going to move all this money around. I'm going to take care of you, but like, I need you to pay attention and you can't talk to anybody and you have, I mean, to have that much control over someone for that period of time and they never even met in person is pretty incredible. Right. Never met him in person, convinced her that he was an FBI agent and he was working a fraud that was committed with her social security number. Amazing. Hmm. How did she discover that this was a scam? Well, she went home that, that weekend or after that, those final, that final transaction from her retirement account, she got home for the weekend and she discussed with her husband that she felt better that all the transfers had taken place. And he said, well, what are you talking about, I guess? And she said that she had transferred money and he wanted to see some documents. She showed him some documents, including transfers to a Panama Bank. And he said, oh, no, th- this is a fraud. Mm. So that's how it kind of came to a, a head. And then they did take a time to call the bank, but it was a weekend, so they couldn't get anybody from the fraud department or the compliance department. So they went to the police department and reported it to the police department. I take it based on the article that the police department must have got the FBI involved because they did recover some money. It doesn't say which accounts, so it must have been one of the Bank of America accounts, but it was only about 12% of the money. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's typical because I've, I've worked in the seizure forfeiture side of the the law for a number of years. And that's what we tried to do is recover proceeds from unlawful activities. And this would be a, an unlawful activity, obviously, this robocall scam. And and the, the money is the money or the proceeds is the money that she transferred from those four bank accounts to the benefit of him. Yeah. So was the FBI the agency that was able to help her recover that amount? It didn't say specifically. It just said that the PD and the FBI. But my experience tells me that, you know, the states don't necessarily have seizure forfeiture provisions, whereas the federal agent would have uh, seizure forfeiture provisions. And that's probably how the money was recovered in part. Right. You know, we talk a lot on this podcast and even on our team about how, oh my goodness, if we could just get business owners just to check a few things, you know, like the most simple thing is just look at your bank statement every month because the recovery on even an embezzlement is just so low. And so obviously in a scam like this, same thing. I mean, I'm surprised she even got the little bit back that she did. I am too, Leah. I I thought it was remarkable because this is a fairly sophisticated scam. Yeah. And, and how they hadn't already sent all the money overseas. I That's just really surprising. So as far as, you know, a prevention measure, 
what kind of services are there to help with some of this robocalls, spamming, spoofing, things like that? Obviously, education and providing information to groups that are potential victims. In this particular case, the Wall Street Journal article said that they themselves, the Wall Street Journal, had requested executives at the robocall blocking services, TNS Inc., were contacted. And that group, I guess, I'm not familiar with them, but I thought you and I probably should be alert to who they are because they study telephone network traffic and work with large carriers and looked at records tied to the phone number the scammer used. And they reported, TNS reported, that it was linked to other reported scams at the same time. That might be, you know, something that if you ever got involved in an investigation of something like this and it was over a period of time, you might have an opportunity to work with somebody like TN, from TNS Inc. who works with telephone network traffic and they can provide you some information that might help you out investigating it. And one of the things that they, they use the term snowshoe spamming. I myself have never heard of it. I don't know. Have you ever heard of it? I have not. Well, the TNS stated that uh, scammers originate a small number of calls from a large group of phone numbers, therefore spreading out calls to avoid detection. The way a snowshoe spreads a person's weight out to make it possible to walk on top of the snow. So I guess they trademark that name based on all the telephone network traffic they analyze and, and study. But they came up with the term snowshoe spamming. And, and another term that was highlighted in the news article or the Wall Street Journal article was from AT&T called Neighbor Spoofing. And I think I've heard of this one before, where scammers spoof or fake the number appearing on your smartphone screen to make it look like the caller is close to you. In other words, an area code in your area or close to a neighboring area code. That makes many people more likely to answer the phone. And in this case, the ATT spokesman said the victim's carrier or who was the victim's carrier stated the calls in question appear to have come or originated from India. So this was a pretty sophisticated group of people. I take it that since they were linked to other reported scams, that she was not the only victim of these uh, scammers. Oh, for sure. You know, it's interesting, the beginning of all of this quarantine stuff, we actually had a couple calls on the main workman line where this lady left a voicemail like over the weekend and then like late one night and she was so mad at us for continuing to call her and she wanted to know why workman forensics was looking into her and all this stuff that's just not a very fun conversation to try to explain to someone that it was not us calling her that we don't know who she is so yeah you were spooked yeah, yeah. My number was definitely being used to scam someone. And um, anyway, so we got to handle those lovely calls. So not too long ago, you worked a case related to a scam that kind of fits in this category. Do you want to talk about that? Yes, uh, I, I wasn't actually the case agent. I just made a contribution to the investigation, tracing some money transactions. But uh 
it's similar in that there were a lot of calls made between the scammer and the victim. But the start of the case involved a dating website where like Christian Mingle and Match.com, for example, Mm-hmm. And and the scammer on the website claimed that he was a financial advisor. As a result of that, he convinced an Oklahoma female victim to lose $1 million via two $500,000 wire transfers to Barclays Bank in London, England. Wow. And after the wires, the scammer, who used a false name, he, he ceased to communicate with the victim. And the, so the victim never met the scanner, but you talk about serious money. You know, we just described this Wall Street article involving 337 plus thousand dollars. This one victim in Oklahoma got taken for a million dollars. Yeah. And, and uh, one of the transactions that we followed up on was uh, a transaction that linked the purchase of flowers that were delivered to the victim from a local Oklahoma City florist. The downside of it was it was paid by debit card from a bank corp account, but the debit card had no account holder information. So in other words, it was a prepaid debit card. Mm. And those type things are becoming more and more common in these types of investigations. And I'm telling you, they create a lot of complication and they just make it much more difficult. But ultimately, we were able to identify who bought that prepaid card, and it turned out to be a co-conspirator who acted like the scammer's daughter, and whenever the scammer needed a female voice, he would use her, so she was a co-conspirator. She bought prepaid cards and and paid for certain things like flowers and set up the uh, dating website paid for it with the uh, prepaid cards, that kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. in this particular case, she was used to act like she was Mary Jo White, head of the SEC, and and, uh, convinced the victim that her $1.3 million was not safe at the particular firm that was held. And so that convinced the victim to allow two $500,000 wire transfers, which ended up in uh, London. Ultimately, that money went to uh, Nigeria. And in this particular case, the scammer was indicted in Oklahoma, convicted mm-hmm. by jury trial, and is currently in jail. So oh, wow. he, he, and he, he had scammed multiple women of this same scheme totaling over $13 million. He was living quite the lifestyle in Houston, Texas. He had a million dollar home paid for, expensive cars, and we were able to seize some of that information, seize those assets. But uh, he, he was from Lagos, Nigeria. But it just goes to show you, you know, when I started my career, you might get a telephone call that I've been scammed for $5,000 and the money went through Western Union overseas to this mm-hmm. lady in the Wall Street article who got scammed for $337,000 to this one lady who got scammed for a million dollars. So it does go on and and uh, hopefully this will alert people to be careful when they're dealing with somebody they've never met and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think this is 
great just to see the different ways that these things unfold. And if I had been in this situation, you know, the thing that I always try to do if I get a phone call and somebody says, you know, I'm an FBI agent and there's a case out on you. I mean, this has never happened to me. But if if that was the case, I think a lot of people don't know that there's actually a field office, an FBI field office in every state. And at a minimum, you can call that field office and talk to a case agent just right. instead of calling the number back. I know one of, the, one of the most surprising thing when I worked for the FBI was some of the calls that would get sent to my desk. Just I'd say, oh yeah, I had some crazy calls today. And my friends would say, you mean you can just call the FBI? So yes, if you're listening and you need to know this, you can just call the FBI and just verify these things. But then also just from these two different stories, I think it's really helpful as someone who does advise clients that by contacting the FBI and and police that there can't there are chances or hopes of recovery and i think a lot of times it just feels like oh there's so many of these scams you know your complaints just going to go into some black hole somewhere but for me to remember you know yeah you need to just contact the FBI the internet crime center and that there, that there is a chance of some sort of recovery. And that even though the money went to Nigeria, I mean, you had this guy living in the U.S., but just sending his money to Nigeria and then living off of it. Right. Because uh, we trace some uh, uh, mortgage money payments, you know, to pay on the mortgage, big money, like 500000 at a pop sometimes to, uh, you know, traced it from Nigeria to the uh, to the bank where the mortgage was held. So. Right. Uh, it, it made a complete circle, but but the point really is is that th- these crimes take place and they involve involve small dollar amounts, medium sized dollar amounts, and very large money. Hopefully, along the way, we can help people and to be alert to that or or what to do. And in our case, as investigators, you know, like I said, the the books and records and this the Wall Street article really turns out to be the phone mm-hmm. because there's a phone number that she called. There's uh, pictures of the transfers on the phone. So that becomes some of the evidence that could potentially, hopefully maybe convict the guy doing this kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Well, it's a really fascinating story and I'm glad it caught your attention and that you wanted to share it with us today. Well, thank you. And, uh, Kudos to you for doing these podcasts and hopefully they help people along the way. I hope so too. Thanks, Dave. The Investigation Game Podcast is a production of Workman Forensics. For more information about the topics we discuss on each episode, please visit workmanforensics.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also connect with us on any of the social media platforms by searching Workman Forensics. If you have any questions, comments, or topic ideas for the podcast, please email us at podcast at workmanforensics.com.